The best way to have one's project fail is to not plan. In this series, a lesson from Nehemiah, how to complete a project, plan, or idea successfully, we'll look at what Nehemiah did for his project and how we can apply similar principles to our own endeavors. Let's jump in. Tonight we're going to visit a section of the Bible that we almost never get to. And I'm going to ask you to find the book of Nehemiah. As I talk, Nehemiah is back there before you get to Job. And I say it because we, we rarely, we rarely visit Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So we're going to do a, a little history tonight. And tonight we'll be setting the stage for the message. Now some of you remember exactly almost 10 years ago, I did a message on Nehemiah. And uh, tonight I'm going to expand that message. So if any of you have trouble finding, I'm not, no, I won't be surprised because, like I said, we want to be able to visit that section of the Bible. Although Minister Johnson had us go to look at a passage. Yes, I Chapter 10 last, last week. Uh, all right. So in the book of Nehemiah, we get the great story about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And from this story, I say we get a model plan. Will you be interactive? We get a model plan on how to complete a project, plan for executing an idea successfully. It's also about setting goals, setting and keeping goals and seeing goals to completion. Now, the importance of this story out of Jewish history to us as Christians is that while they're talking about rebuilding walls, uh, in terms of symbology and the examples it set, it's really talking about how we go about rebuilding the walls of our life. Uh, a lot of us have walls that are in a ruinous state. And this could be in any number there. Sometimes it could be with your family, it could be it could be on your job, it could be in your finances, it could be in your health, it could be in any of those areas that I talked about uh, the last few weeks. So this model that I'm going to uh, lay out for you, and uh, today, tonight, will only be introduction, or introductory, and we'll get into it more. What I'm going to give you tonight are the preliminaries to setting up that model. And so forth. And that's all contained, by the way, in the first chapter of Nehemiah. So we're going to, we're going to go to that. Uh, Nehemiah, uh, the first six chapters really deal with this model that I'm talking about. And then the remainder of the book, that's chapter 7 through 13, deal with the reintroduction of Jewish law to the Jewish people. See, they had, prior to this time, they had been held in captivity in Babylon. Uh, for 70 years, and one of the reasons they were carried off into captivity is because they had been disobedient to God. They had stopped observing the commandments. They had become idol worshipers uh, and, and so on. And, and then the prophet Jeremiah predicts that they're going to suffer 70 years under the foot of Babylon. And this is one of those prophecies that came true, and it's also documented in history. So when we Look at this part of the Bible, that's Nehemiah, Ezra, and Esther. You're looking at Jewish narrative history. And there are 
and, they, and, and there are there are things that are recorded in the Bible that are actually recorded in history. Now, uh, so let me let me let me let me uh, start here with the prophet Jeremiah. And as a matter of fact, uh, leave Nehemiah for a moment and go to Jeremiah chapter twenty-nine. This is setting the background. Jeremiah is uh, next to uh, Isaiah. I think it's right after Isaiah. So when you get there, it's, uh, we're going to look at Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah had, is one of those prophets who was always on the case of the Jews for being rebellious and disobedient. And he said that they would be carried off away from their nation and the duration would be six, uh, 70 years. Uh, and and this, is, this is stated uh, in Jeremiah 29, starting at verse 10. And what you see here, this is the prophet saying, when he says, thus says the Lord, this is a prophet giving you prophecy uh, uh, directly from God. So uh, we'll start reading at uh, verse 10. He says, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place, this place being Jerusalem. Uh, uh, they were going to be scattered to, uh, throughout Babylon and, and other places, but primarily Babylon. Uh, and 11 is one verse that you know because we use it all the time, but you may not have seen it in the context from which it comes. Number 11 says, this is, this is God talking to, through the prophet uh, Nehemiah, to the people. He says, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, I've used it numerous times, and other ministers have used it. You've heard it. I think everybody in this room has heard it many times, but you don't always know the context in which, from which it comes. And 12, it says, then you will call upon me, and go and pray to me. And what he's saying is that you will call upon me and pray to me again, what you've been neglecting, and I will listen to you. And in 13, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's one that I use. I've used that scripture and so forth. But this is showing you where it comes from and in the context that it's in. <clears throat> and then 14, it says, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. <coughs> now go back. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Uh, this just broke open, open today. Go back uh, to uh, a few chapters of Jeremiah 25 and look at verse 12. Jeremiah chapter 25. Yeah. Jeremiah 25, 12, and you have it, you have it? Here it says that, then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So in point of fact, in terms of history, 
King Cyrus the Great of Persia defeats and conquers Babylon in the year 539 BC. When you study this history, if any of you ever get that involved in it, and I'm not sure how many of you would, uh, you'll find that a lot of historians use BCE. How many of you are familiar with that terminology? BCE, what does it mean? You got it, before Common Era. And so if you're out of BC, you're in CE. So what is CE? All right, okay, so you're, you're with it. That corresponds roughly to our BC and AD. Everybody knows BC, before Christ or before the birth of Christ, and AD means what? Okay, well, it actually means Anno Domini, Latin, in the year of our Lord. <laughs> right, it's not after death. No, <laughs> but it's 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 in the it's in the it's it's after it's in the year year of our Lord. So that's not bad. I guess it, I guess it would fit there with AD. <laughs> so I'm mentioning these things to you to show that these are not only biblical events but also events in documented history. In other words, we know historically that Cyrus, the Persians, defeated Babylon and ended the Babylonian captivity of, of the Jews because under the Persians, and this is interesting, under the Persians, Jews, they were treated, the ones in captivity were treated much nicer and much kinder. And it was Cyrus, he defeated Babylon in 539 BC, and then the next year, 538, he issues a decree allowing them to return to their homeland. Now, the reason that's significant, because Persia is modern day what today? What country? She got it. It's, it's modern day Iran. Do you think that the Iranians and the Israelis today are friendly? No. Not if you follow history, not at all. Not at all, not at all. But it was the king of Persia who permitted the Jews to return to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the temple and so on. And this is part of what we're, we're talking about. So uh, the Babylonian captivity lasted exactly seven years as predicted, extending from the burning of the temple. That was King Nebuchadnezzar who sacked Jerusalem, burned the temple, and carried off most of the people with him into captivity. So it goes from 586 BC to 5116 BC. Now you don't have to remember any of these dates. As a matter of fact, when I come back to finish this, and it may take one or two more times, I'm gonna give you all of this. So you don't have to worry about keeping track of these dates in BC and, and so forth, okay? Now here's a little more background on Nehemiah. Nehemiah appears in the Old Testament between the books of Ezra and Esther. You can see that if you're back, go back to Nehemiah now. And you'll see that, <coughs> excuse me, again, it's sandwiched between the books of Ezra and Esther. These three books cover roughly the same period of Israel's history about 100 years from the decree of Cyrus the Great that I just mentioned in 538 BC, which allowed Jews to return to Jerusalem. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are part of the same story, and in the Jewish Bible, which I have a copy of, Ezra and Nehemiah are not separate books. They're really one book. Our Bible separates them, and why, I don't know, but they separate them, but it's really one book. So, so with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, 
the continuous, and this is a little Bible history, the continuous his, historical narrative of the Old Testament comes to a close. That narrative goes all the way back to Genesis, especially starting with Abraham. But it really starts from the beginning, and that narrative, but let's say from Abraham, dealing with, that's a covenant made with, 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 with the Jewish people up until the writings of these two books is a continuous narrative of Jewish history. And this is the end of it with these two books. Now, another interesting fact, and I've already mentioned it to you, about the, oh, about the historical recordings in the three books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they appear in our Bible in reverse order of the chronology in which they took place. In other words, you have Nehemiah, uh, Ezra, and, and Esther. Actually, it should be the other way around. It should be Esther and then Nehemiah, Ezra, one book. Because the events really that took place in Esther took place prior to these two books. And, uh, and, and they conclude with Ezra and Nehemiah. So, so it's just a little bit of, uh, it probably doesn't make a big difference whether you know this or not, uh, whatever, but it's, uh, it's interesting. So Esther actually happened when God began to act on Israel's behalf and saw the return of thousands of Jews back to Jerusalem. It accelerated when Ezra was able to lead some 40,000 back and began the rebuilding of the temple in the city. And of course, met with lots of, lots of opposition and they weren't always that successful. So uh, uh, Ezra led a portion of the nation of Israel back to Jerusalem in 458 BC. And Nehemiah's return happens in 444 BC. And that's who we're gonna be dealing with today. So when the events recorded in Nehemiah took place, it's after thousands of Jews had returned and attempted to rebuild the city, as I said, under the direction of Ezra. And they met a lot of opposition and, and challenges, not just from, from you know, uh, disagreeable Jews who were there and whatnot, who didn't get on the same page, but the surrounding tribes were always uh, menacing them. And they were really sort of left out unprotected because the wall was in disrepair. And so in, in those days, the wall was your main security and protection in the ancient cities and so forth. So, so I guess that's why Donald Trump wants to build a wall around the, <laughs> the United States. What's the problem with that in terms of security? He's talking about the border, of course. The problem with the wall in modern day time is they just fly over the wall. <laughs> okay. Uh, but anyway, uh, the order in our Bible is Nehemiah, Ezra, and, 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 and Esther. It should be just the other way around. Uh, <coughs> Ezra begins with the rebuilding of the temple uh, and then comes the building of the wall surrounding the temple, which is the plan that Nehemiah developed, and it's the plan from which we get the model that we're going to talk about later. Okay. And in Esther, we find a revelation about God's plan to restore the people back to their homeland. So you have to remember this, that the Bible is less concerned with exact historical chronology in terms of dates than historians are. And uh, it's more concerned with just making sure that the historical 
narrative of, in this case, the Jewish people is recorded. And uh, so you can't lay the Bible on top of history and expect it to coincide exactly. And I'm sure you've heard that before. That, and also some characters in the Bible you will not find in history. And some characters in history you won't find in the Bible. But in terms of what we're talking about now, you'll find Nebuchadnezzar in history, you'll find uh, the uh, King Cyrus the Great in history, and so forth. So uh, there is an overlapping of the two. So uh, let's turn to uh, Nehemiah, 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 Nehemiah to pick up the story. And this is where we begin to see the model plan of action that I'm talking about uh, start to take shape. Now, just a word about Nehemiah. I was reading, one writer was saying that the only thing he knew about Nehemiah for years, because if you don't get into it, you don't, you don't know, he said, is that he was considered the shortest man in the Bible. Short, shortest man in the Bible. And he said that maybe that's why he had the name Nehemiah. Oh. <laughs> But when, you study, but when you study Nehemiah, you will find that, 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 that the plan for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem have a lot to say about how we should go about rebuilding the walls in our life, and the walls that are in disrepair. And again, as I said, setting a goal, keeping a goal, and seeing it to completion. So let's start. Uh, and we're going to go uh, verse by verse in, in, the, in the first chapter of Nehemiah. You're at uh, Nehemiah 1? Yes. Okay. It reads, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Ashala, it came to pass in the month of Shislev. I'm not Shislev. Hislev. H-I-S. Hislev. Because the C in Hebrew is, is silent. Like Hutzpah, it, start, it starts with C, but you don't hear the C, so that C is silent. And by the way, you don't know this, but that's the months of, that's November, December, that period. In the 20th year, and uh, you would only know if somebody told you, it's in the 20th year of the reign of the king. And that king's name is listed as Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, and this is 445 BC. As I was in Shuzan, the citadel. Now let me just say something about the names of kings because those names, for example, Artaxerxes is really not a king's name. Even though he's referred to by that name by Nehemiah, Artaxerxes just means the great king. So you'll see Artaxerxes in other places. You'll see Artaxerxes in Ezra. But that's a different Artaxerxes than this Artaxerxes. So this, I, I, we're not sure what the name of this, I'm not sure what the name of this king is. And by the way, you're familiar with the story of Daniel, who was in Babylon under the Persians, and he rose to such heights. That king was King Darius. It's, it, it's almost along the same time, and, and so on. So Daniel was one of the ones carried off into captivity as well. And he was a youngster when he was carried into captivity and rose to be so high in the government of, uh, of the Persian Empire. So, 
Okay, that's that's uh, verse one. Uh, uh, verse two, then Anani, one of my brethren, came with, with men from Judah. And I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Three, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity, remember, Nebuchadnezzar didn't take everybody. He left, in other words, he took the good, the healthy, the strong, and talented people. He left mainly the, the people who were uh, less talented and, and poor with him. So they were there. So this is what his friend is telling him. And they said to me, verse 3, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. And they have not been able to build the temple uh, beyond its foundation. And they are in great reproach because the, this, I mean, I know this from the surrounding tribes. These are all the lights that you hear about, the Amalites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the, and so they were laughing at them. You know, I mean, he, he, you people don't have any ability. You don't have any resources. How can you do anything? And so they were, when they say in reproach, they were in reproach by the surrounding tribes and so forth. Uh, and those tribes saw them as weak and ineffective and vulnerable because they didn't have the protection of the wall and were in total disarray themselves. And continuing with verse 3, and they're reporting to uh, Nehemiah, the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and the gates are burned with fire. And continuing. So here I pick up step one. Now this is not the model. This is preparatory to the model. But I pick up six steps in this first chapter of Nehemiah that lay the foundation for the model. And again, you can write what you can down, but I'm going to give this to you the next time we get together. So step one, I have, in putting any idea, plan, or project into operation, the first step is to gather the necessary facts regarding a situation. And that's, in fact, what he, he did. He inquired of people who had been there on site to tell them exactly what was going on. And so the facts are that the people are in distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is destroyed. And that means the people are left unsecured from attack by outside enemies and so on. So any plan or project has to be based on and begun with knowledge, knowledge and information. And this is where Hosea comes in, Hosea 4.6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Everything precedes, everything emanates from knowledge. Because you don't, as I said, I was talking uh, about the health in one of the messages I gave uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I said, you need to know what your health situation is because if you don't know what's going on in your body, you don't know how to pray. You don't know what to stand for it. You don't know what scriptures to, to locate that you can stand on and, 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 and ask God to and expect God to honor. So it starts with knowledge. And uh, so in this case, it's not a lack of faith per se. It's not a lack of love or devotion or even obedience, even though all of these had something to do with the Jews being carried off into captivity. It was mainly, and by the way, that was mainly their disobedience uh, in, in terms of not continuing to follow the statutes and commandments of the Lord. And so that's step one is getting the facts. Verse four. So it was, if you're following along with me in the Bible, so it was when I heard these words 
that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Step two, it's just that step that you just read, is to be moved to genuine grief about a situation that needs to be changed in your life when you, see, when you receive news or become completely aware of the destructive things affecting the walls of your life. And so, in other words, if you're not moved about it, you don't care, you're not going to be motivated to do anything about it. So, if you find that your children are in distress, your health is in distress, your finances are in distress, your job is in distress, things in your neighborhood are in distress, if you're not moved by those things, you won't be motivated to do anything about it. So, the question is, is your faith wall a love wall in ruins? Are the walls surrounding your life being destroyed by fear, worry, doubt, and unbelief, the things I talked about uh, a week or so ago? Is the wall surrounding your finances in ruin? Are the walls surrounding your personal and family life in a state of disrepair? Is the need for action or change so great that your concern would move you to tears in any of these areas, as it did uh, Nehemiah here? So step two is to be so strongly affected by what the situation is, is that you would be moved to grief and tears, that you would pray continuously to God, and that you would be motivated to do something about it. So step, step three is to set up a prescribed period for fasting and prayer. Now you know that many people fast, and they fast because they'll tell you, we're working on something. And so fasting is preparation, that's your self-preparation, your self-discipline, preparing you for something, and so on. Self-denial is one of the uh, uh, great things that, uh, that we have that can be used to actually build strength and so forth. Denial of self, see the problem with so many people is that you're so preoccupied with self, in other words, what, what, uh, <laughs> little, little background music, <laughs> that you're so preoccupied with yourself that, uh, <laughs> that, in other words, you can't concentrate on fashioning the plan or the idea or the project that needs to be undertaken. In other words, if you can't get beyond worrying about, first of all, your own situation, the situation of your family, the situation of your job, finances, and so on, you won't be able to concentrate that well on setting up a plan of action to deal with these situations and so on, especially if that concern is motivated and dominated out of worry and fear. Because as I talked about uh, the last time we were together at Sunday service, those things paralyze you, they strangle you, and they really inhibit your ability to think soundly and to act soundly and so forth. So you need to get, so self-denial is really uh, a, another way of saying denial of self. And uh, that's something that humans have a lot of trouble with, but that's what fasting is all about. When you're fasting, you really are denying self. You're denying self of food, and uh, you may not deny yourself of water at that time, although some people include water as well. This, I don't recommend that you go on a 30-day water fast, but food uh, uh, is it, it, okay because 
More likely than not, we all have enough food and fuel to last us for 30 days. So, all right, so let's go to verse 5. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. The next verse is 6. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which, I have, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. So he's not just praying for himself. Remember, he's praying for the children of Israel and all of those who... who had gotten into disobedience and who had strayed away from the covenants of God and the statutes of God and the commandments, especially those that had come by way of Moses and so forth and so on. So he's praying for them. And, and you remember I said in one of the messages is that one way to get your mind off yourself, whatever is going on with self, and this could be illness or challenge or financial need and so forth, is to do something for somebody else. Yes. And to and, and we're commanded to look not out not only for our own good but for the goods of others and so forth. So that's what we're talking about here. Continuing and reading verse seven, we have acted very corruptly against you. He's talking about the children of Israel. This is what led them to be carried off in ca captivity, and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded by your servant Moses. So step four is to confess our sins, especially in any disobedience. And I would always add any unforgiveness. If there's any unforgiveness in your makeup, if you're holding things against people, that unforgiveness will block what God has for you. That unforgiveness will block it, very important. And it's about getting right with God before you set out on any mission, plan, or project where you expect God's help. In other words, if you have not gotten yourself right with God, that's getting rid of unforgiveness and uh, disobedience, then you really can't expect him to be a part of your uh, plan. When you take this step, you actually begin to make God a partner with you in your plan, project, or idea. And that's what you want. You, if you have God as your partner, mm -hmm. you know the statement, yeah. if God be for us, who can, who can be against us but you have to make sure that you have cleared the deck of disobedience, unforgiveness and things along those lines now right at this point uh, it reminds you of 1 John 1 9 where we're told and you know that by heart, most of you know that by heart we're told that if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So going to God, we Christians are in a much better position than was Nehemiah. Because if you listen to the language of Nehemiah and the writers in the Old Testament, all of them, all of them, whether it's Joseph, Daniel, Moses, anyone, what were, what were they to God? They were servants, that's right. You hear him always say about your servant, your servant, your servant. Well, we are operating under a new 
and better covenant with much better promises. We are not servants, we are children. All right, so let me just refer you to that scripture, one of the scriptures that points it out. So we're not just, we're not servants anymore, we're children. We're heirs and we're joint heirs. Don't you think a child and an heir and a joint heir of Jesus is in a much better position than a servant? Yes. So even though they had a closeness with God in terms of, 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 uh, of God actually dealing directly with them, we have a closeness that's superior to theirs because we are children of God. And Romans 8, 16, 17, is one of the scriptures that I've referred to, and there are others in the Bible that, 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 that tell us this, but Romans 8, 16, 17, and you can write these down, but I, as I say, I'm gonna hand this out to you uh, when we uh, continue this message uh, at a later date. Uh, verse 16 and 17 says this in Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. We're in a much better position, much better position. And unlike Nehemiah and the children of Israel who had numerous commandments, ordinances, and statutes to observe, we Christians today are instructed that if we do one thing, we will have fulfilled the law. And what is that? Hmm? No, no. No, right. <laughs> That's important. Accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior is important. But if we love, and you remember uh, the two commandments when <coughs> the Pharisees were testing Jesus and said, which is the greatest of the commandments? And he said, uh, first of all, he said, love thy God with all their heart, with all their might, with all, all their strength. Paraphrase. Well, I'll read it exactly. And uh, you'll find this in Matthew, in several places. In Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus says this. Verse 37, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 38, this is the first and great commandment. 39, then the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If you do this, if you love, and genuinely love, especially if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you have fulfilled the law. So we're in a much, in other words, we don't have to remember the 10 commandments and the hundreds of commandments that came out of that and all the other ordinances that have to do with food and diet and, and so on and, and religious observance that we do if we do those two. And the, and the reason is, is that if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you're not gonna rob him. You're not going to covet what he has. You're not going to say untrue things about him. You're not going to do anything to destroy him and, and so on. So that's why it's the fulfilling of, of the law. Uh, and one of the problems is, it's interesting, Pastor Fred was talking about this on Sunday morning TV program a couple of weeks ago. He says, one of the reasons people have trouble loving their neighbor is themselves is that they don't love themselves and so if you really have self-hatred as some people do by the way so, oh yeah exactly no it's a, a lot of people really live with self-hatred they hate who they are 
they hate where they are, they hate what they have, they hate the parents that they have, they hate the brothers and sisters they have, they hate the job where they are, they hate everything about themselves. And, and they may have an inferiority complex or they may have a superiority complex, either, either, either one. And I always say an inferiority, I mean a superiority complex is usually masking an inferiority complex. If you don't love yourself, then it's very hard to love your neighbor. So it starts with loving yourself. Uh, let's go to verse 8, Nehemiah chapter 1. He says, remember, I pray the word, Oh, he says, remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, no, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my, for my name. And he's talking back to Judah, to Jerusalem, and so forth. Now these, this is, this is uh, Nehemiah continuing to pray. He says, now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Now what great power did he redeem them at another period? Under the leadership of Moses, he led them out of uh, Egypt. Uh, in Exodus and so forth. And he had, he continued to demonstrate great powers before them. See, we don't have, uh, we don't have that necessarily. We do have miracles that occur here, but we don't have the things that God did for the people in those days uh, because they were not born again Christians. They didn't have Christ in them, the Godhead in them. So he had to continually demonstrate that he was with them about outside things that they could see. And so we have everything in us. And, and the problem is that we're still looking outside when everything actually is contained within us. So uh, what you see in those last two verses where he starts, and he starts, he says, and let me go back. He says, remember. So this is a key for us too. And you're told this all the time. It's right for us to put God in remembrance of the things that he promised us as, as blood-bought children of his. You put him in remembrance. You put him in remembrance of his promises. And that's why knowing what those promises are in the Bible is so important. You put, it, put him in remembrance of his promise that, that he that all my needs shall be supplied according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You put him in remembrance of that. You put him in remembrance that by his stripes I am healed. You put him in remembrance that, that it is you who gives us power to get wealth and so forth. You put him in remembrance of all of those things and so on. So, uh, he remind, and he, 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 he said that he reminds God that the Jews were his servants and his redeemed people, redeemed in the Exodus. When you read Ezra, you will see that God had already started to enable thousands of Jews to return to Judah. You remember he said, I'm going to inflict great harm on Babylon. And so he did that through King Cyrus. King Cyrus defeated Babylon. He was king of Prussia. 
and Prussia took over Babylon. So God kept his word. So as Christians, we have so many promises that we can put God in remembrance of. And one of the ones that I like to go back to, because it has to do with observing and, and staying in the word is, is Psalm 1, the very first Psalm. Yeah. And Psalm 1 reads, blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And because he does this, he shall be, in verse 3, like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in due season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. God's promise is that he will prosper if we delight in, and delighting in simply means to obey his word and meditate on his word day and night. And we can remind him that that's what we're doing and so forth. Now, the, you, you know, you, you, I hardly ever hear this mentioned, but you shall be like a tree planted by the river. What's the significance of a tree planted by the river? Yeah, that's all true. But those trees have the deepest roots. They have the deepest roots. So you, when you're planted by the uh, uh, rivers of water, you have deep. Talk about being rooted and grounded. If you're planted by the rivers of water, you're going to be deeply rooted and grounded. Believe me. So that's one of the promises. And he makes... And God promises a lot of things, and, and I'm not, because I went over so many of these in those last five messages I gave you. But an important one, when you're facing temptation, and when you see temptation, it means trial and test. So let's take a look at that famous scripture that you also know by, by heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. You know it by heart. No temp temptation, and it includes trial and test, has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation, uh, will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And we can remind him of this, that as you're suffering and you're being severely tempted, God, where is my way of escape? Because <laughs> this, this is one of the promises. And finally, verse 11, excuse me, that's the last one. You can go ahead and read it. I'll read it out loud. It's the last verse in chapter 1. It says, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear you and your name, or to fear your name. He's talking about the children of Israel. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him, meaning grant the servant, the one who's praying, Nehemiah, mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. He's saying in the sight of this man, he's saying in the sight of the king. Because of what he wants to set out to do, he needs favor in the sight of the king, who was his boss. So step six, all coming out of the first chapter, is asking God for the specific help that you need 
here Nehemiah asked God. What happened to four and five? The last one I got was three. What, the steps? Yeah. Oh, I'll go back over them with you again. Okay. Yeah, I, we, we went over them. I went over them. But I maybe blended them in, so. so. Okay. So six is asking God for the specific help that you need. Here Nehemiah asked God to please hear his prayer, to let him prosper this day, because this day he intends to do something. And we'll see that in the next chapter. And to grant him mercy and favor in the sight of the king to whom he served as cupbearer. And it reminds me of Philippians chapter four, verse six, which tells us to be anxious for nothing, don't worry about anything, but in prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your request be, be made known to God and a peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so that's what he's on. So I'll go back and repeat those right quickly. The, uh, and we'll go over, I'll, we'll, I'll review this again when we come back to this because we will get into the, the, the real model uh, at our next session. These are the preliminary things. You said you, you, you left off at step four? Step three was to where you prescribe a period for prayer and fasting. Step four, confess your sins. And that's where I was talking about unforgiveness. Get out of unforgiveness. Step five is where you put God in remembrance of his promises. We just went over that. And step six is, and this is all in those first, in those verses in the first chapter. And step six, six is actually asking God for specific help. Thanks for listening. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Or join us for Bible study on Thursday evenings at our fellowship office, 470 7th Avenue on the 6th floor, right in Herald Square. Thanks again for listening. And remember, walk by faith, not by sight.